Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that you would teach us to cling to your promises for us. Lord, where we are in need, reassure us. Where we are in error, convict us. Where we are discouraged, bring us into your joy. Amen. We are still in Hebrews over the next few weeks. In Hebrews 6, is one of those difficult passages. It's the sort of beauty and curse of the lectionary is that you don't get to avoid things that you might rather skip. It's 4 to 6 of chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, that raise the most difficult questions. The writer to the Hebrews says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted in the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. These verses raise hard questions. Can a person truly be born again and then fall away? If a person falls away, Is it truly impossible for that person to repent? Hebrews 6 isn't the only place in the New Testament that deals with something like this. You likely remember Jesus in Matthew 12 speaking of an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Or you might remember John in 1 John chapter 5 speaking of a sin that leads to death for which no prayer can be offered. It's not the only place. It's important to be careful, though, about what this passage is and is not describing. Because oftentimes when people talk about losing your salvation or talk about whether this is possible, they talk about it as if it's something that can just sort of accidentally happen, like your keys getting lost. Hebrews 6 makes it clear that this is not some random sin. It's not a sin that can be committed accidentally or without knowledge. Instead, Hebrews 6 is describing what we would call willful and total apostasy. Apostasy doesn't show up out of the blue in the New Testament. In fact, the image that this writer uses of ground that's supposed to produce fruit producing thorns instead, that image is an Old Testament image. It calls us back to the very beginning, to the fall itself. A garden is supposed to produce fruit, but in the rejection of God, it becomes a place of thorns and thistles. It calls to mind the fall, in other words. It fits with descriptions that we see of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, descriptions like Isaiah 5, where God says, I planted you as a beloved vineyard to bear fruit, but you rejected me. You wouldn't bear fruit for me. And so I broke down the vineyard and I cursed it and it became a place of thorns and thistles. Apostasy is something, in other words, that we can understand better if we think in Old Testament terms. There we see that apostasy is willful rejection of the Lord as God willful pursuit of another God instead of him. It's not something that happens by accident. It's not something that people can do unknowingly. And interestingly enough, 
It's a sin that only people on the inside of the covenant can commit because it involves turning against that which you've been given and turning against that which you know. So when Ahab begins to worship Baal in the time of Elijah, this is apostasy. He has the word of God and he rejects the Lord. Or in Ezekiel's day, when the priest literally drew images of pagan gods on the inside of the temple and worshiped the rising sun on the steps of the temple, this is apostasy. When Judas sold the Son of God for money, that was apostasy. Hebrews 6 describes it as somebody who's been enlightened. They've been shown the ways of God. The church fathers understood this idea of enlightenment is the thing that happens to you at baptism. It's describing a person whose soul has been enlightened. It's someone who's tasted the heavenly gift. In other words, the church fathers, again, saw this as somebody who'd been given the Eucharist. They've received the goodness from God. It's somebody who's shared in the Holy Spirit. It's somebody who's tasted the goodness of God's word. Somebody who's seen and tasted the power of God's kingdom. Then that person rejects Jesus as the Messiah, wishes him back on the cross, holds him in contempt. In other words, this isn't something you can casually or accidentally do. I say this up front because I think sometimes when we talk about this, we need to be reassured that you don't accidentally fall into the sort of sin being described. The description, the description that Hebrews gives us actually reads like a description of Judas. I actually wonder if he had Judas in mind. Somebody who's been enlightened, who's tasted of the goodness of God's word, who's seen the power of the kingdom at work, who's seen the Holy Spirit at work, and then willfully rejects Jesus as the Messiah, turns his back, puts him on the cross for money. Jesus' description in Matthew 12 is helpful. Looking at this, this sort of most flagrant of sins from a different angle, he says, in effect, if you call the Spirit of God the devil, if that's the depths of your turning your back on what God is doing, there is no forgiveness for this. My initial point is simply that we need to think carefully about this because apostasy isn't a casual sin. It's actually the most egregious thing that a person could do. It's the most egregious thing that a person could do because we start with somebody who's on the inside, one of God's people, as it were, a person on the inside who purposefully turns and willfully calls his creator evil, wishes Jesus back on the cross, chooses to worship something else in spite of the enlightenment and the grace that he's been given. My initial point is simply think well about this thing as we jump into this passage. It doesn't happen by accident. As a little kid, I remember being terrified that I might accidentally commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And my point is this thing doesn't happen just because you weren't paying careful of enough of attention. It's a willful rejection of the Lord. I still haven't answered those two difficult questions though. Was that person ever truly saved? Were they born again? Is it possible to repent of it? I haven't answered those questions, even as I've tried to describe the sin of apostasy 
And I can't answer those questions. I can't answer them because good and faithful theologians disagree on those answers. I cannot conclusively prove something that the Bible doesn't conclusively prove. I have my opinions, and of course I think I'm right. But good and faithful theologians who submit their hearts and minds to the scriptures disagree on these answers. The question of, is that person truly saved? Were they actually born again? On one side, some people say that apostasy is demonstration of the fact that no matter how much of the goodness of God they had received, they were never truly saved. On the other side, you see people saying, Hebrews 6, this sure sounds like somebody who's actually been born again, been enlightened, tasted the word of God, a partaker of the Holy Spirit. This sounds like somebody who is willfully renouncing salvation that they've actually been given. Is it possible to repent of it? There are some who look at Hebrews 6 or Matthew 12 or 1 John 5 and say all these passages seem to say you cannot repent of apostasy. But others would say you just can't repent of it as long as you are committing it. It's not like other sins that you can repent of, commit, repent of, commit over and over in an endless struggle. It's unique. It's incompatible with repentance. It's an either or. Either you're committing apostasy and rejecting God, or you're repenting. You can't do both at the same time. It's mutually exclusive with repentance. It's unlike greed or adultery or dishonesty, where the person can do it longing still to be right before God and falling again to their sin nature. Apostasy, because it's a rejection of God, is something that a person can't repent of in the midst of doing. This is what the other side says. But like I said, I can't prove answers to those questions because the Bible doesn't. And I'm convinced that the Bible doesn't prove an answer to either of those questions on purpose. It doesn't tell us 100% how to think about this. Faithful Christians, in other words, can disagree on this. But I don't actually want to get sidetracked on those two questions. I mention them because they arise from this passage. But getting sidetracked on those two questions actually misses the point of this passage. I don't want to miss the point in getting sidetracked by theological theory. The point of this passage is actually an incredible stern warning to people who are waffling in their faith. His point is not a theology of apostasy. It's a stern warning to people who are waffling. And what he says to them is, don't be like those who have fallen away. Don't be like those who've rejected the salvation that they were given. Don't be like those who tasted God's goodness and then turned your back on it. Protect what you've been given. Grow into your faith. This is his point, is this warning. And I don't want to miss the point for the sake of interesting questions. The passage starts with biting irony in chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. He says to them, you aren't going to understand my message because you've become dull of hearing. This isn't literal, by the way. It's ironic because he goes on to preach his message to them. This book goes deeper into theology than most books in the New Testament. He tells them, you'll never understand this, and then proceeds to tell them. He's being ironic in a biting way. He says to them, you ought to have become teachers, but you need someone to go over the basics again. 
Again, it's biting irony because he actually goes deep into theology in the next few chapters. Even in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, he makes it clear that he was being ironic because he says, we're going to leave behind those basics and proceed deeper. His point with this shocking irony is to wake them up. He's trying to wake them up so that they would care, so that they would grow. You ought to be discipling people, he's saying, and yet you need a discipler. You ought to be teaching, yet you need a teacher. He wants them to wake up, to care about their faith, to grow in their faith. His warning about apostasy is just that. It's a warning to take their faith seriously. Don't be like those people who've fallen away. Don't throw this treasure that you've been given away. He's not trying to build a theology of apostasy, which is why we would be missing the point if we got stuck trying to answer every question. He's trying to shock them, to shock them so that they step deeper into their faith, deeper into growing. That's the point we need to listen to this morning. We need to listen to his warning. We need to listen to his warning because all of us hit moments when we need to hear it. All of us hit moments when we are in danger of being sluggish about the faith. All of us hit moments when we become indifferent to our faith. All of us hit moments when we are face to face with the danger of waffling just like this congregation was. In other words, we need to hear his warning that says, wake up, wake up. We've been given grace. We've been given all that we need. And if he were speaking to us, he might be saying, you ought to be teaching others. You've been given all that you need. Wake up, grow, care. We hit those moments when we become indifferent to our faith when the weight of discouragement just simply sets in. My guess is you know what I mean. When the world feels too heavy and it's just too easy to take it easy in terms of the faith, to coast for a little while. We hit those moments when persecution occurs and we shrink back in fear when we downplay our faith because I don't want to seem that crazy out there in the world. We downplay what we've been given. We hit those moments when our heart gets embittered or hard because we've been hurt. And we just sort of seal ourselves off. Sometimes that hurt, especially when it comes from someone on the inside, a Christian, a family member, causes us just to turtle up. And we shrink away from a deep stepping into our faith because life hurts too much. We hit those moments when we need this warning, when we get tangled up in repetitive sin that destroys our joy, that saps at our faith, that cuts away our desire to pursue God. My guess is that all of you can look at yourself and see seasons where you just went through the motions, where you just coasted in terms of the faith. Moments when you needed someone to say, wake up. Don't be like those who've thrown it all away. You should be teaching by now. You might even say, I feel like I'm in one of those moments right now. I feel like I'm in a moment when I just need my faith woken up again. In other words, we need his aggressive irony. 
we need his shocking warning that says you might lose it all. Don't be like those who fall away. But we need more than just his shocking warning. We actually need his kind and hopeful encouragement. I was scared of preaching this passage, to be honest. But I realized the more time that I spent with it, how gentle he is. It's true, he's ironic. He shocks them. He bites and warns to keep them from falling away. But look at verse 9. He says, though we speak in this way, though we speak in this harsh way, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Listen to his encouragement. We need his warning, but we need his encouragement perhaps all the more. He says, beloved, beloved, we feel sure of better things. You may hear the warning and see the bankrupt parts of your soul and say, woe is me. Listen to him saying, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of better things. You might need that encouragement now because you might feel like your faith is dormant, is dry, is nearly dead. You might be wondering when your heart will actually wake up into joy and hope and trust again. You might need that encouragement because you might be wondering, what if my faith fails? What if I fail in the end? Listen to him saying to you, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that pertain to salvation. As I was preparing the sermon, I came in here by myself and sat down in the front pew to pray. And as I was praying through this, I was just praying through the places of the dormancy of my own faith, places where I need to be woken up yet again, just feeling the weight of those places where I don't step forward with the vigor and the zeal that we're called to step forward with, feeling the weight of that. I had my eyes closed as I was praying, and I felt the sun shining through the window. And so I opened my eyes, and the clouds had parted just enough for the sun to shoot through this window right here. And the words, he restoreth my soul, came screaming out at me. Beloved, we feel sure of better things. We serve a God who restores souls. He brings life from the dead. He reigns on barren ground to cause things to grow. There's a confidence that we can have because the God that we serve is that sort of God. The writer to Hebrews expresses that confidence. This is verse 10. He says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. There's confidence because Christian love has flowed from this congregation in the past, and so he can say to them, Beloved, I feel sure of better things. I have seen God at work in your life. He has been there in the past, and his love has flowed through you. And so I'm confident that he will bring better things, things pertaining to salvation. He has worked in the past, and he will continue to work. I say that to us in the words of Hebrews. God has worked in the past. 
and he will continue to work. There is a confidence that there are better things, things pertaining to salvation that will occur. God's work in your lives has been real, and it will continue to go onwards in spite of the way that it feels someday. And so his encouragement is press on. Press on. Step deeper into the faith. Press on. Grow deeper. Look at verses 11 and 12. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who the faith and patience inherit the promises. He calls them to be earnest, to seek the full assurance of hope, but it's grounded on the fact that God is already at work. It's grounded in the fact that he can testify to greater things, things of salvation because of what God has already done for them. He calls them to be earnest, to grow in hope, to grow in the scriptures and in prayer, to grow in worshiping together with zeal, to grow in confession of sin, to grow in learning to love those who are hurting, to grow in patience and compassion. These are all things he says throughout the book of Hebrews. They're ways of fleshing out what he means by pressing on. Be zealous for the scriptures. Be zealous in prayer. Be zealous in worship together. Be zealous in confession of sin. Be zealous in loving those who are hurting. Stand strong. What he's effectively saying is let God's hope grow in you. Let it reshape you. Let it transform you. I want to close with a simple thought. Y'all may hear that and go, indeed, I need to step forward in certain ways. I've let my faith be dormant in this way or in that way. You may hear that and go, I need to step forward and take something more seriously. But it's important to state at the end that the key to this is not you trying harder. It may involve you trying harder. It likely will involve you trying harder, trying harder in devotional practices, trying harder in zealous worship, trying harder in patience and love for those who are hurting. It likely will involve that trying harder. But the key is not trying harder. Your perseverance, in other words, does not begin with you. It actually begins with God's promises. Look at verse 12. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who persevere are very simply those who cling to the promise of God. This is where we have to end because this is our foundation. Those who persevere are those who cling to the promises of God. Those are the people that we are supposed to imitate. Not those who tried harder, but those who clung to God's promise. It's true that clinging to God's promise will inspire us to try harder, enable us to try harder, but the point is not our effort. It is the promise of God. This is the only thing that can muster our strength. If I say, go be worthy of God, have a better devotional life, you will fail and I will fail. If I say, go do a better job loving those who are hurting, prove yourself worthy of God, you will fail and I will fail. But what the writer of Hebrews reminds us is that those who persevere are those who cling to God's declaration of what he will do. God promises to love you. Cling to that promise. 
God promises to preserve you. Cling to that promise. God promises to heal and to restore you. He restores my soul. Cling to the promise that he would heal and restore you. God promises to preserve you to the end. Cling to those promises. And so the call of Hebrews is step deeper. Don't let your faith get stagnant. Don't waffle. Don't throw it and throw it away. Cling to the promises of God. Just like those of old who said, I will bank everything on God showing up, cling to his promise, and he will bring it to fruition in your life. Amen.